I'm Derek Jensen. This is Resistance Radio on the Progressive Radio Network. My guest today is Chris Vaughn. Chris is an activist living in the Upper Peninsula, Michigan. After learning of the proposal to develop a copper sulfide mine in the heart of a thriving ecotourism area, right next to both Lake Superior and Porcupine Mountains State Park, he launched the website www.protecttheporkies.com, as well as the accompanying petition found at www.change.org slash or backslash protect the porkies. So first off, thank you for your work on the world. And second, thanks for being on the program. Well, thanks a lot for having me on, Derek. Um, you're doing a huge service to our campaign just by giving us some airtime. One of the main issues here is that so much of the mine is unfolding in secrecy. A lot of people don't know it's happening. We had a report the other day of a gentleman who rode his bike to the mine entrance road and asked if there was a copper mine. And he was told, there's no mine here. So the company that's trying to develop this metallic sulfide mine realizes it's a terrible location. And so I think they're trying to keep it under wraps as much as possible. So I'm of the philosophy that sunlight is the best disinfectant. So the sooner we can spread the word and get people motivated about this issue, the better. So I thank you again for having me on. Well, thanks for for raising the issue to public attention. Um, so let's talk about the mine itself first, or the proposed mine. Sure. So it's been in the works for a while. It's been passed on from one Canadian company to another. It's currently under the helm of Highland Copper. They are a what you might call a junior company. They have zero experience owning, operating, developing a mine. And yet they're expecting us to entrust them with the closest metallic sulfide mine to Lake Superior in history. It would also be directly adjacent to Porcupine Mountain State Park, which is, in addition to being Michigan's largest state park, also contains the largest tract of mixed old growth forest remaining in the Midwest. So this is a ecologically very important area. It's also economically very important. There's a thriving outdoor recreation industry here. Um, the Copperwood mine, they're calling it Copperwood. That's the name that was passed down to them from the previous organizations. We've renamed it Chopperwood, just to be a bit more truthful about what's actually going on. Copperwood sounds a bit too beautiful. Um, because the mine has been in talks for nearly 20 years now, it's blended into the background of a lot of the environmental discourse in the region. People don't really take it seriously. They think it's never going to get rolling. A lot of local folks are They've been hearing about it for too long, so they've taken the stance, I'll believe it when I see it. But just this summer, Highland Copper finally announced that they would begin summer site preparation. They've begun clear-cutting hundreds of acres of forest. They've started rerouting streams. They're preparing for where they're going to build their tailings disposal facility, which is a, 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 mega, a megalithic structure, some of the largest man-made structures on planet Earth, which will hold 50 million tons of waste rock right on topography, which slowly slopes towards Lake Superior. It would This uh, waste rock storage site additionally would be right next door, less than a quarter mile from the North Country Trail. A lot of folks are familiar with the Appalachian Trail, and I believe it's called the Pacific Crest Trail over in your neck of the woods. The North Country Trail is the Northwoods answer to these uh, super epic hiking trails. It's actually the longest of all hiking trails, point-to-point uh, -point national hiking trails. It stretches from North Dakota to Vermont. So this summer, folks hiking along the North Country Trail, trying to enjoy the bird song and get some fresh air, you could actually see the, machine, the machinery from the trail through a clearing in the trees. You can see the clearing from the trail right where they're going to erect their tailings facility. So we've got this beautiful ecological area, this thriving outdoor recreation area. The construction of the mine and the operation of the mine would subject this area to light pollution. It would be lit up 24 hours a day or, or all night long. So the folks camping at the Presque Isle campground would see the 
stars basically eradicated from the night sky. There would be sound pollution from rock grinding 24 hours a day. A fleet of diesel generators would be operating. Um, and then, of course, there's larger threats like acid mine drainage, which is when, because they can't just take the copper directly out of the ground in its finished state, they extract it from chalcosite, which is copper sulfide. So once the copper is wrenched from this rock, they're left with an enormous quantity of sulfides, which then mix with air and water. Both air and water are very plentiful on planet Earth. So when the sulfides mix with air and water, they make sulfuric acid, which is also known as battery acid. This then steeps over waste rock, it steeps over sediment in rivers, and it leaches out heavy metals that had previously been undisturbed. Those heavy metals contaminate the waterways, they contaminate the groundwater. There's going to be more heavy metals coming out from the exhaust ventilation system. All of this heavy metal dust left over from the rock grinding and the extraction taking place underground. Um, that dust catches on the wind, can travel for miles in all directions without anybody controlling it, and then it mixes with rainwater and snow to fall back to the earth and add to increased contamination of the ecosystem. So, you know, it, it's kind of a, seems like a pretty nightmarish situation to impose on such an important area. Lake Superior is the largest freshwater lake by surface area in the world. It contains about 10% of the world's surface freshwater. So this is a, a time when we're seeing the world become hotter and drier. Um, access to fresh water is contributing to armed conflicts all over the world. There's a lot of cities in the United States that have to import water from hundreds of miles away. Fresh water is a far more valuable and far scarcer resource than copper. So I don't think there's any logical argument for endangering the largest freshwater lake on the planet with acid mine drainage or the risk of a tailings dam rupture. So that's, um, I mean, I could go on and on, but that's the situation in a nutshell. Um, thank you for that. Can you, can we, let's get, before we go to what the biome is like, let's get some, also some basics on the mine. So um, how big is the, would be the, I guess the word these days is footprint. How big would be the area destroyed by, by the mine um, as planned? Um, how is it, is it, how is it surface? Is it, is it how, how big is the hole? Um, how big are the related buildings? How much extra road building has to go in, et cetera, et cetera. Just what are some, what, sure. what's the scale? So Highland Copper, I believe they own about 1,500 acres back in that area. Um, a portion of their property is Lake Superior shoreline, wild shoreline, where they have been talking about installing a pump station to bring water in directly from Lake Superior. I was surprised to learn that these mining operations require tremendous quantities of water. Like a, a mine can use the same amount of water that an entire city is using. So they were actually denied their Lake Superior pump station permit by the Army Corps of Engineers. So now we don't really know where they're getting their water from. The tailings disposal facility has required clear cutting about 400 acres of secondary forest, um, a mix of maple, birch, hemlock, ash. In addition to the tailings disposal facility, there would be 57 acres of wetland destruction. That's the number they gave us 57. If you look at the map of the area, it's covered in seasonal creeks, seasonal streams. I'm not sure where they got that 57 number from. It seems low. They would be performing then what they call wetlands mitigation. So basically, that's where you destroy established wetlands, which have thriving populations of countless organisms. And then you dig a hole a couple miles away and you dump some water there. You plant some cattails and you wait for the frogs to move back in. Um, I think that's comparable. If I came into your neighborhood, Derek, or someone else's neighborhood and I bulldozed all of your homes with your family and friends currently living inside, 
And then I built some cookie cutter homes a few miles down the road and said, don't worry, more humans will move in. And I call it suburb mitigation. So it's, uh, it, it has a nice innocent ring to it, but mitigation just means destroying an established area and then trying to play God and recreate it down the road. So in addition to the wetlands mitigation, 57 acres of wetland destruction, the 400 acres of clear cutting for the tailings disposal facility, they will also be building uh, sewage lagoons, explosives plants, processing plants, east and west exhaust stations where the heavy metal dust will be um, spewed onto the wind. There's currently quite a large network of dirt, two track roads back there. It's just a, um, a labyrinth. I'm not sure where they all lead, but it, the development of the mine would require resurfacing County Road 519, which is a very humble county road, crosses multiple streams. It's the main access road to the state park. And they would need to resurface it in order to facilitate heavy industrial traffic at all hours of the day. Just to give folks a sense of how poorly positioned this mine is, if you park at the North Country Trail parking lot, it's only a 30-second drive to the Chopperwood Mine entrance road. Then from the Chopperwood entrance road, it's only a 15-second drive to the Porcupine Mountain State Park entrance sign. So in the space of 45 seconds, you've gone from the longest point-to-point -point national hiking trail to the metallic sulfide mine to the park containing the largest mixed old growth in the Midwest. Um, one last one last question before we go to the biome, which is, um, and you may have mentioned this, if you did, I'm sorry that I missed it. Um, how, how close is the nearest uh, human community? So the, there's a town called Wakefield. All of this is taking place in Western Upper Peninsula, and I can describe the location a bit more um, later on. But the closest town is Wakefield, which is about 17, let's call it, let's call it 15 miles down the road. And then there's a smaller town of maybe 200 people um, just a couple miles before Wakefield called Thomaston. Um, what I'm really getting at with it is um, I've I've lived in rural areas most of my adult life, and uh, sometimes mines bring in huge amounts of traffic in addition to everything else. And I'm wondering if this will increase the the traffic on the roads quite a lot uh, with the trucks. It would definitely require heavy industrial traffic at all hours of the day. As far as how many people would actually be coming, you know, when they're trying to sell a mine to a community, they always talk up the number of jobs that are created. In the beginning, they start with high numbers. And then once they get all their permits and the mine gets up and running, the, the final number tends to be much lower. So um, they're saying this is going to create 500 jobs. But a, a similar operation in Marquette County, also in Upper Peninsula, there's a uh, iron sulfide mine and nickel mine called Eagle Mine, and they employ about 80 individuals. So this is nothing that's going to be revitalizing an economy. Oh, I was actually asking. Thank you for that. I was really actually actually asking about the the trucking because there are some places I've known. I lived in northeastern Nevada for a while, and some of the mines would have like trucks coming by every five minutes or some incredibly frequent. And these are areas where they're normally so quiet that I, I literally did this when I lived in northeastern Nevada. Um, there were places where I could put a pocket watch on the ground and walk five or ten steps away and still hear it ticking because it's so quiet. And then every five minutes or so, there's this huge roar of a diesel truck coming by. My, yeah. my concern is not really for the humans, but just the non-humans. But Well, the anyway, noise pollution, yeah, the noise pollution is terrible for everybody. Not only does it interrupt the the peace and quiet and the the calls and the mating rituals of wildlife. But at the Presque Isle scenic area, uh, this season, the sounds of clear cutting were very audible. So you're walking along the Presque Isle River, you're trying to enjoy some truly spectacular waterfalls there, and you can hear the sounds of clear cutting in the background. So just imagine what 
uh, mining traffic will sound like, what rock grinding will sound like. This is from a, a purely human perspective, but I do think humans have the right to seek peace and quiet in nature. And that's got to be one of the scarcest resources there is th these days. So thank you for that. Um, you've mentioned the the mixed old growth and you've mentioned. Well, just just tell, tell us about the the biome and, and let's leave off Lake Superior for a minute and then you can talk more about Lake Superior ecology in a moment. But let's let's just go with the land for a moment. Sure. Well, just to give folks an idea of where this is taking place, because a lot of people have never even thought of Upper Peninsula, Michigan, or seen it on a map. Um, this is an area, if you look at maps of light pollution, you'll see the whole eastern half of the country and all the Midwest is dark red. And then you get this oasis in the Upper Midwest, of northern Minnesota, uh, northern Wisconsin, and Upper Peninsula, Michigan. So there's very minim minimal light pollution. There's very minimal agricultural chemical concentration, very small population density. So Upper Peninsula, Michigan is, is largely forested. In this area, we've got, as I mentioned, Porcupine Mountain State Park. Um, this is about 60,000 acres in total. It's a mix of birch, yellow and white birch, maple, ash, hemlock, pines, oaks, a mix of conifers and deciduous trees, some very, very old examples of all of these trees. One of my, I've, I've seen this a few times and I found it just so beautiful, is uh, a, an old hemlock tree which had fused together with a yellow birch tree. So their trunks were actually weaving around one another. I believe they call this inosculation but you can find some really incredible old tree specimens here. Uh, most importantly, well, not most importantly, but from a demographics perspective, this is the largest tract of eastern hemlocks, old growth eastern hemlocks remaining in the country. Eastern hemlocks previously were much more common in the east of the country, but they've been all but wiped out by a parasite called the woolly adelgid, which to this day has not yet arrived in Upper Peninsula. So our eastern hemlocks are still in very good health. Um, winters here are pretty intense. We get up to 200 inches of snow is the average, but it can be much more than that. Winters can be long from November to April. When the snow melts in the April in, or April and May, it creates countless seasonal streams. At, at my property, I thought, you know, these were paths that I was walking. But then when I checked them out in April, I found that they were actually creeks. And so all of these streams and springs come out of nowhere. And then they flow into Lake Superior and then start drying up in summer. Um, summer is, you know, pretty mild. A lot of days in the 70s, 80s, 60s. Bug season starts mid-May, goes through mid-July. You know, a lot of people become interested in Upper Peninsula because it's proximity to some very important fresh water sources. But uh, if you come here, it is a beautiful area, but just trying to take a walk in the woods in June is an extreme sport, just trying to cope with the swarms of mosquitoes. But that keeps the amphibians very happy. There's many species of frogs and newts and salamanders. And because the growing season is so short here, the seasons change very quickly. So you can see it really in the progression, the succession of wildflowers. It's like one week, the spring beauties are out. The next week, Dutchman's britches and the daisies and the goldenrod. You can see the world changing week by week. Um, you see it in, in the mushrooms that come out. One of my, you know, up here, probably similar to your neck of the woods, where I know in Northern California and the Pacific Northwest, that's mushroom capital of uh the country certainly but up here we've got definitely some great mushroom foraging chanterelles oysters lobster mushrooms um, several very important medicinal mushrooms lion's mane turkey tail chaga one of my favorites is the red reishi mushroom which is called ganoderma tsuge that means shiny skin and the suge means hemlock so red reishi which is known as the mushroom of immortality in 
Chinese and Japanese medicine, it grows specifically in relation to hemlocks. So this region of the country where we've got the largest forest of old growth eastern hemlocks, it means that this is one of the most pristine areas for harvesting red reishi mushrooms. Uh, mushrooms are bioaccumulators of heavy metals. So if you're searching for mushrooms, you really need to find sites that are not near any sort of industrial activity. So again, this is just another example of why it's such a terrible location of a mine right next to one of the best and cleanest populations of red reishi mushrooms in the country. Uh, these are mushrooms that have been studied for anti-tumor activity and wound healing activity. Uh, as far as other important organisms in the area, uh, this is an area that the gray wolf comes through. They reintroduced, I mean, the gray wolf was here long before humans and long before the Europeans arrived. Certainly, they were hunted to extinction in this area back in the 1800s. But then they were reintroduced, which is a topic of some controversy among locals. But I believe the reintroduced wolves did not fare so well. So most of the ones that are here now, they come over from northern Minnesota and come across Wisconsin. There's three gray wolf packs in this area. Unfortunately, the chopperwood mine would be developed right smack dab in the middle of one of those wolf packs territories. So wolves, in addition to just being an iconic species, they fulfill a very important role in the ecosystem by keeping the deer population in check. They stop the deer from over browsing on stream banks and on the bluffs around lakes. And so they keep erosion from occurring uh, by limiting the deer population. So you can see how this is exactly the opposite of the miners who are currently destroying wetlands and rerouting streams. Um, this, this area, we've also got barred owls, uh, fishers and pine martens, bald eagles nest on the bluffs and in the trees uh, along Lake Superior. Peleated woodpeckers are another favorite. These are massive woodpeckers. I'm not sure if you've got them in your area or not. Yeah, these do. are massive woodpeckers. Yeah, when they start, I mean, I was enchanted when I saw one on the side of my house the other day, but then it started pounding its head and it was like having a, a pterodactyl on the side of my house, you know, going to town on it. Um, but they're definitely remarkable creatures. And they, they sound tropical to me too, when they call. Um, yeah, they certainly do. There's other really beautiful bird calls in this area. My favorites are wood thrushes. You know, uh, late spring and early summer in this area, there can be insane swarms of bugs, the likes of which is difficult to imagine until you've experienced it. But if you brave the bug swarms and you go out for a hike in late spring, early summer, uh, not only do you enjoy the sound of all the seasonal springs and streams coming through, but the wood thrushes and the warblers uh, provide a, a truly stunning orchestra. You know, it's like these wood thrushes. I think every single call is unique. I, I've tried to listen to see if they repeat a call, but every time, you know, they're they're like expert free jazz improvisers. So for me, it's not only about protecting the ecology of this area, but pr protecting the integrity of the beautiful woodland soundtrack, you know, just being able to find peace and quiet, find birdsong, find... Uh, you know, the sound of, of running brooks and streams. This is something that needs to be cherished and protected. Yeah. And, you know, I've interviewed a couple people about uh, the destruction of soundscapes and natural soundscapes. And we don't, I think some of us don't think about it much, but um, the, I've read accounts of, um, I mean, I know, you know, I've written a lot about, for example, salmon just getting absolutely hammered. And I've read accounts of how there would be so many fish in the stream that they would keep you awake at night with the slapping of their tails. And um, I was talking to an old timer. This is like 2002 or three. I gave a talk in here in Northern California. And there was an old timer said that she remembered when she was a kid that you could hear the salmon runs for miles before you see them. And that's inconceivable to me. And it's the same with 
a lot of these bird songs. I mean, that's that's why Rachel Carson called it Silent Spring. It's just, I think that that is absolutely devastating. And it's something we evolved with and, and we don't know how to live without. Yeah, and unfortunately, it's something that is very difficult for people to perceive how it's changing because of what ecologists call shifting baseline syndrome. You know, maybe uh, your great great grandfather lived in a world where he could hear the salmon runs from miles away, but each generation compares what it knows to uh, the world as it was when they were born. So they don't necessarily see the steady decline of these soundscapes or the urban and industrial sprawl. That, that's why it's so important for people to do the work and show what their true history is. And, and I know that it's absolutely central to my enjoyment of life that I can walk outside at night and not hear uh, cars, not hear any human sounds. It's, it's, Oh, one last story about that. I lived, when I lived in Spokane, I listened to tons of music all the time. And then when I moved here, um, I started listening to music less and less. And at first I was thinking, ah, I'm just getting older. But then I realized it's because when I lived in Spokane, I lived within about a couple hundred yards of the interstate. And half of the time, or two-thirds or three-quarters of the time I was listening to music, it was just to drown out the interstate. It wasn't actually because I wanted to listen to music. Yep, I can relate to that completely. I used to listen to loads of music. And since I've come to live in a more remote location, uh, my friends ask me, so what are you listening to these days? And I don't really have an answer for them just because silence and 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 the, the bird song and the bug song, it doesn't get much better than that. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I want to ask something else about the old growth, but I'm not I'm not sure what. Um, so, can you talk about the old growth a bit, a bit more? That particular sure. forest you mentioned, hemlock. Um, can you, can you talk? If you want to talk more about hemlock, that's great. But if, if you also want to talk about any other bird, I'm, I'm sorry, plants or tree species, that'd be great. Sure. Well, there's uh, hemlock is definitely one of the most plentiful, as well as maple and white and yellow birch. Specifically, the the birch tree was and continues to be very important to the native people in this area, the Anishinaabe, uh, who were named the Ojibwe by other tribes. Ojibwe means those who write, because the Anishinaabe had a method of uh, taking what are believed to be religious records on birch bark. And I've read that it is definitely one of the most advanced forms of writing in North America. So the Anishinaabe used the birch not just for writing, but for their canoes, for the construction of houses. In the springtime, they tapped what they called sugar bush, which is the maple tree. So they tapped maple for syrup as well as birch for syrup. And sugar was actually a very important part of their diet in the spring. Um, yeah, what I really love about the old growth is that it's not just the trees, but it's what's happening on the ground. Because you've got these undisturbed ecosystems, which have created a lot of shade and dense, moist, shady conditions, all of the mosses and the liverworts and the lichens are thriving and the ground just becomes this this moist sponge that you can feel it sort of uh, ebbing as you walk on top of it and then that makes it an excellent ecosystem for mushrooms and for insects and for newts and other amphibians so the old growth because it gives home to these moist environments. Um, it's incredibly fire resistant. At this point in time, we're seeing wildfires raging in, in many parts of the world. And secondary forest, I don't really like that term secondary because it implies that it's secondary in importance, but secondary forest is home to a tremendous amount of species as well. Uh, and 
if we value old growth forest, it shouldn't just be a diminishing resource, right? We should protect secondary forests because in time they would become what we would call old growth forest. But they exert the, the same fire resistant properties if they're allowed to mature. As trees grow older, they their bark thickens and becomes fire resistant. They shed their lower limbs. Uh, their shade then allows for the ground to develop into that mossy sponge that I was talking about. So what Highland Copper is doing right now, even though they don't have a functioning mine, even though they don't even have the final permits required for their tailings facility, by going into the middle of this beautiful secondary forest and clear-cutting hundreds of acres, they are replacing these shady, moist conditions with hot, dry areas of increased airflow. This is precisely the sort of area where wildfires would be exacerbated and possibly even initiated. Some of the largest wildfires in the country have started specifically in mining or in uh, logging areas. So this idea that forests need to be managed to prevent wildfires, the best way to manage them, I think, is by leaving them alone. Yep. And what Highland Copper is doing right now, they're, they're doing all of this this summer in order to fulfill permit obligations. For them, it's just like checking a box. All right, we rerouted the stream, check. We destroyed the wetlands, check. We clear cut 400 acres, check. They don't even, they haven't even greenlit construction yet. They don't have their final permits. They might not get the money required to develop their mine. So in the meantime, they're devastating this area for absolutely no reason. And, it, and it's tragic that, you know, the way that the significance of a maple or an oak or a hemlock for the Anishinaabe Indians, uh, that's totally vanished. And now it's, it's just about checking boxes. So before we before we move to the resistance to the mine, I have one more old growth question, which is I've lived my entire life in the West and for the most part. And um, so when I think of old growth forests, I think of it's it's conifers. Um, and uh, so can you give us just a little bit more of help 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 a a non help a Westerner to fall in love with a deciduous old growth forest? Right. Well, you know, the beautiful thing about this old growth forest is because it's mixed, we have excellent uh, examples of conifer trees and also the deciduous. The conifers really give that uh, beautiful breathing experience. They're, you know, they're wonderful filtration mechanisms for the air. Whereas the deciduous trees, We've got some truly massive examples of, of maples and oaks and birches. And for me, as somebody who grew up in an area with a lot of deciduous trees, some a part of the year that I really fell in love with is the autumn when you have the leaves changing. And so a, a big aspect of the outdoor recreation and ecotourism area uh, industry in this area is people who come to see the fall colors change. So right now, for example, it's a it's a spectacular, almost psychedelic experience just driving down County Road 519, watching the colors change as you approach the lake because of the lake effect where the conditions are are warmer and milder. The colors are less pronounced. They tend to change a week or two later, about two weeks later. And so from. The beginning of September all the way through the end of October, it's this spectacular color show. Um, you know, that's something purely from an aesthetic perspective, but it's it's very beautiful. Actually, I have another question before we go to um, resistance, which is, uh, can you talk about tailings and um, both the routine... Uh, effects of um, hard rock mining on groundwater and also the potential catastrophic effects. Right. And I would be happy if you fill in any gaps of my knowledge here. Um, I'm getting into all of this fairly recently. I came up here and, uh, you know, when I learned about the, the mining proposal and I tried to find information on the internet and I couldn't find anything. And so I made a website and that's then led me to investigating all of these different areas of interest.
But so I'll tell you what I know. And if there's something you'd like to add, I definitely appreciate it. So tailings to me, I didn't know what that word meant in the beginning. It's, it's an abstract word. But what tailings are is the leftover waste rock after the copper or whatever the mineral in question is has been extracted. Um, you know, with many of these energy production or energy extraction operations, we've seen with natural gas and with oil, how first they, they extract the higher quality sources. And then over time, as those high quality sources run out, they have to look for lower and lower quality. The same thing is happening with mining. It used to be that you could find copper mines that were extracting a 20% ore grade, which means about 20% of the rock in question was copper. This chopper wood mine is about 1.5%, 1 to 1.5% ore grade, meaning that 99% of what they extract is going to remain in this massive tailings disposal facility. Um, then, so as far as how that contaminates groundwater, so in addition to just the fact that they're clear cutting and disrupting the soil and disrupting the system of roots and mycelia, which was keeping the soil intact, the tailings then can mix with, they, they do mix with water and with air. Supposedly that is contained in the tailings disposal facility, but there's never been an example of a metallic sulfide or hard rock mine in history, which did not contaminate the, the water, either let's, the groundwater, the streams, the lakes, all of the above. Let's just focus on that for a minute. I find it, it's, it's just so interesting to me. Uh, an image that I keep thinking about and somebody introduced to me 30 years ago was the Forest Service keeps putting out timber sales and an activist, a fellow activist said to me, would you buy a used car? From someone because they they say the timber sale is going to have no significant impact and then of course it does have impact every single time they say no significant impact and it does it's like would you buy a used car from somebody who had sold you three thousand used cars or ten thousand used cars and every one of them broke down within a, a lot you know a, a a block of the part of the the used car lot or would you go to a surgeon who every single one of their patients died over the last ten thousand patients you would think. You know, we 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 do sometimes define intelligence as the ability to recognize patterns. And you would think that if every single hard rock mine in history had polluted groundwater, that we consider ourselves the smartest species on the planet. You would think that we would learn after however many mines that this is a pattern. And yet we somehow anyway, I just needed to throw it in. Yeah, definitely. And I think, you know, so much mining has been outsourced to third world countries that uh, a lot of us who are living privileged lives in North America, we haven't had to think as much about mines because when they do take place in the United States, they tend to happen in more remote areas. In this case, um, you know, it's right next to Lake Superior. That's 10% of the world's surface fresh water. It's right next to the Presque Isle River. Lake Superior connects people. It, it's the drinking water for multiple cities uh, in this country. It connects multiple states, multiple countries. It's the headwaters of all of the Great Lakes. So any contamination that occurs in Lake Superior eventually will find its way uh, flowing on into the rest of the system. But it's it's not going to be a speedy process. It takes about 190 years for a single drop of water to cycle out of Lake Superior. So any contamination is going to be there for a long time. There's already, you know, mercury warnings on most of the fish in the area. So uh, adding more heavy metals through acid mine drainage and through uh, the particulate matter through the exhaust vent. Like mushrooms, fish are also bioaccumulators. So this is, you know, I don't think anywhere is a good place for a mine, but on a scale of from bad to worse, this is about as bad as it gets right next to the largest freshwater lake on the planet. And um, 
I don't I don't mean to be alarmist, but let's talk about uh catastrophic uh mines tailings failures or even semi-catastrophic because they certainly have happened. When you have a line on your on your website, no one ever hears about tailings dams until they go wrong. And there have been certainly some of those failures around the world that have been catastrophic. Yeah. There's been multiple recently in Brazil. Um, but there's an important study that came out. Let me see if I can find the name. Um, well, it, maybe I'll find it. Maybe I won't. But you can look this up. The gist is that the serious and very serious failures of tailings dams, even though mining technology has improved supposedly over the years, uh, the the risk the the occurrence of serious and various serious failures is actually increasing about 20 times every 30 years. So despite increases in technology, we're actually seeing more dam failures. And the reason is, is because as these companies have to use lower and lower ore grade, they then have to try to manage larger and larger piles of waste rock into the you know tens and hundreds of millions, even billions of tons. And specifically, the study talks about how this tends to occur with small companies who don't have the financial margin to invest in the necessary precautions. Um, also, foreign companies, which aren't going to be held liable necessarily because once the mine closes, they hightail at home. And then if you do accost them, they just declare bankruptcy. So the, we're seeing an exact case study of of what's happening here. Highland Copper is a small foreign company, no experience with a mine, and they expect us to entrust them with a, a tailings dam holding back 50 million tons of waste rock on topography that slopes into Lake Superior. I think people really need to grasp that fact. Why, why is it that all of the streams uh, wind up in the lake? It's because that topography slopes downward. So that's not a good place to be storing all of this waste rock. And these companies, they'll always say the dam is not going to fail. And of course, nobody plans for a dam to fail. But the fact that there are so many instances of it occurring, that's the nature of a disaster. It's something that's unplanned for. It could happen in 10 years. It could happen in 500 years. Um, the point is, it's it's just imposing an unnecessary risk on this region for a, a mineral, copper, which even if you're going along with the narrative that these minerals are necessary, it hasn't even been declared a critical mineral by the U.S. Geological Society. So the industry was really pushing to get it declared as a critical mineral in order to fast track these mines. But it was it, it was turned down an upgrade of status. So this is not a life or death situation. We don't need copper to continue uh, living and thriving on planet Earth. And we certainly don't need it to the degree that we should be endangering the ecosystem here, the fresh water here, and the, the outdoor recreation industry as well. So we have about 10 minutes left, and let's talk about um, opposition to the mine um, and what what is being done and what can be done. Yeah. Well, so one of the main problems, one of the main hurdles, I'll call it, not necessarily a problem, but there aren't a lot of physical humans that live near the proposed mine site. So there aren't a lot of people in general to organize on the ground in close proximity to the mine. Of the closest towns, Wakefield, uh, Bessemer, Ironwood, Bruce Crossing. These are places where uh, the old timers um, have fond memories of the mining days when many thousands of people were employed by mines. And again, this project is likely to employ something closer to 100 people. So the first hurdle was how do we start organizing people in an area with mining history? Uh, we're doing a lot of outreach, uh, both on the ground by passing out flyers, putting flyers on the trails, in the coffee shops, in the libraries, in the co-ops, etc., and also um, a large cyber campaign. Because these are international resources, resources which I, I believe to be of international importance, and I don't like that word 
resource necessarily because it is human centric, but these are definitely entities of great value to humans. Um, Porcupine Mountain State Park, for example, was ranked last year by Yelp.com as the most beautiful state park in the country. So I think there's a good case to be made for appealing to folks who are not just in the immediate area. That's why we've been doing a lot of outreach on the internet through the petition. We've got over 7,000 signatures now. The majority of those signatures are from folks in Michigan, Minnesota, uh, Wisconsin, the upper Midwest. But we do encourage everybody to sign it, everybody to make a comment, everybody to share it amongst their friends and family. In the next phase of the campaign, we're hoping to have more media appearances, spread the word. A best case scenario would be to make Michigan just feel totally ashamed to be even entertaining uh, this prospect. We, we need the politicians to feel embarrassed. We need people to write to the governor. We need people to write to the regulatory agency here in an agency called EGLE, E-G-L-E, um, Environment, Great Lakes, and Energy. They're the ones who are handing out these permits, like lollipops, basically. I mean, that's that's the real tragedy here, is that the mine is not fully permitted. Uh, they, they haven't greenlit construction, and yet they're destroying this area anyway. So we're hoping to get some grants coming through in the next few months, which will allow us to have community contests we want people to write essays, submit poetry, submit film, works of art about the importance of the environment, uh, the indigenous history, and the potential for environmental threats in, in the future. So we're trying to find ways to educate the community and incentivize people to learn about this issue. And then we just want to continue scaling up our efforts as much as possible. Um, in our cyber campaign. And also we're currently trying to find funding to do some legal work. We, we need an attorney to map out how the whole mine permitting process works and what is our potential legal path to victory. Ideally, the public opposition will grow so strong that legal action will not be necessary, but we wanna explore all options. That's great. And how do people find out more about your efforts? How do people do any of this? Well, so the hub for all of this information, like I said at the beginning, so much of the mine is unfolding in secrecy. So the first thing I wanted to do was make a place where people can find this information easily. You can go to protecttheporkies.com. That's P-O-R-K-I-E-S. Porkies is shorthand for Porcupine Mountains. Um, and there you can click a button that says take action. That'll give you links to sign the petition to contact Michigan's governor. Even if you're not a Michigan resident, I would recommend that people contact the governor because outdoor recreation in Michigan brings in almost $11 billion every year, whereas mining only contributes $1 billion. So we're talking about a, a more than a 10 times difference between these two industries. So if we have you know, huge swaths of people writing saying that we're not going to spend even another dollar of our tourist money in your state while you're entertaining endangering Lake Superior, endangering old growth forest, that could send an important message. Um, uh, we consider ourselves just to be the messengers here. So we want Protect the Porkies to be a movement, not an organization. So anybody who feels inspired by what we have to say, I encourage you to reach out on our behalf to your favorite news outlets, podcasts, blogs, radio shows, whatever. Tell them in your own words why it's important to cover this story. And we just want this to develop into a movement on many different levels, local, regional, national, international. This is something that should be pissing tens of thousands of people off. So here's my last question. That would have been a great place to end, but here's my last question. Um, one of the things I really try to do is to get people to move from thinking, oh, somebody should do something to actually doing something. And can you talk very briefly about how you, um, how you, how you went from 
going, gosh, somebody should do something to, to being one of the people who does it? Yeah, it was really a moment that happened quite suddenly. I mean, I've spent my whole adult life and childhood from the time I went to Costa Rica in second grade. You know, I decided I wanted to save the Amazon rainforest. Well, there's no Amazon in Costa Rica, but save the rainforest. You know, I was one of those kids. Um, and so I, I spent my whole life talking about the environment and, and doing some writing and, and whatnot. But that that component of real world action was missing. And so as I was up here trying to find information about the mine, and I was surprised that a mine endangering old growth forest and Lake Superior didn't have a website. And I thought, you know, gee, somebody should really put something together and put a petition together. And then, uh, you know, I had the thought, well, maybe I should do it. And if I don't do it, maybe nobody else will. So it was really that moment. Like, if it's not me, then then who's going to do it? And I think uh, we need to multiply that sentiment by 100,000. You know, if, if we don't all come together, then it's not going to happen. So and and that, you know, I really encourage people to see what sort of action you can take because it is very much liberating. Um, I've heard, uh, I think our, our mutual friend, Jeff Gibbs, he told me, uh, the remedy to despair is action, something like something along those lines. And that really is the case, you know, in, instead of just uh, being sad and angry, it, do something, do anything, anything except for grit your teeth, hmm. um, you know, and it really does sort of have a clarifying effect on everything else in your life. If at least you're doing what you can, trying to spread awareness, trying to inspire others, at the very least, even if they build this mine, I think this conversation is raising the vibration for all the other fights that are happening right now in this country and around the world. Well, thank you so much for doing all that. And thank you for being on the program. And I would like to thank listeners for listening. My guest today has been Chris Vaughn. This is Derek Jensen for Resistance Radio on the Progressive Radio Network. <laughs>